everybody and welcome to this, the October edition of the European Urology Podcast. My name is Declan Murphy, urologist here in Melbourne, uh, joined by my co-host, Dr. Joyce Bard in Amsterdam. Joyce, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Declan. Uh, good to be here again. It is good to be here again. So this is our second edition of the podcast. And thank you to all of our listeners who have sent us lots of feedback. We love the feedback on social media and some direct contacts. We love your suggestions. Uh, don't we, Joyce? We want to hear what our audience want to hear on something like this monthly podcast from uh, European Urology. Yes, of course. We really want to hear your feedback because we can uh, take that uh, input uh, for a new episode. So really... Um, Subscribe to our channel and leave some comments. If you have suggestions how to improve or new content you want to hear, please uh, connect with us. Absolutely, do that. And you'll find links in the show notes and up on the screens. Uh, we post this on YouTube as a video podcast and, uh, of course, on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, everywhere else you can find it. And coming up in uh, this month's episode, um, we're sticking with a similar format to our first episode. We have two key papers that ourselves and Alberto Braganti, our editor-in-chief, have selected out of all the uh, fantastic content in the October edition. Um, we also have Nikita Bat joining us again to quickly highlight some other things that caught her eye in the journal um, and we have coming up uh, later on a, a treat for those of you who like listening to hear uh, what editors really have to think about the journal and about publishing uh, because I was in Milan last week and I had a chance to catch up with the current editor-in-chief Alberto Braganti and previous editor-in-chief two times past uh, Francesco Montorzi uh, based in Milan as well so um, yeah stay tuned for that great catch-up with editors past and present coming up uh, later in the journal um, but first of all Joyce uh, the first paper that was selected out this month is the 21-year update of the ERSPC from the Rotterdam section and you had a chance to catch up with um, study author Monique Rubal and prostate cancer expert uh, Peter Albers uh, to talk about this key paper so let's uh, cross over and hear uh, what they had to say to you about this uh, very nice paper in this month's European Urology. So for our first discussion, I'm very happy to introduce our first guest and actually one of my Dutch colleagues. It's Prof Professor Monique Robol. She's an epidemiologist and professor of decision-making in urology at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam at the Department of Urology. She's also the head of the scientific research office in her department and in the lead of several large international clinical and population-based screening studies on prostate cancer. She's here today to discuss the latest publication, SPI, of the very well-known European randomized study of screening for prostate cancer, the ERSPC. Uh, and today she will present uh, the outcomes of impressive evaluation of 20-year follow-up results so welcome, Monique, to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you very we much have, for this very nice introduction. <laughs> yes. We have a second guest uh, for this section. Uh, and, and our second guest is Professor Peter Albers. He will discuss with us, uh, together with Monique, uh, the outcomes of uh, this new publication. Professor Peter Albers is the chairman of the Department of Urology of the University Hospital in Dusseldorf in Germany. And of course, we know him as a board member of the EAU and chair of the Scientific Congress Office. So welcome, Peter. Welcome to all of you. Thanks a lot. So Monique, before we invite Peter to take over the discussion with you, we know the ERSPC was initiated well back in the early 90s, uh, where I think a lot of our listeners were just starting high school at the time. So could you please give us a, a to start a brief summary of the project and of course the latest outcomes of this project? Yes, of course. Thank you. Well, actually the ERSPC started in 1991 and I must admit I was part of that. So I was not in high school anymore. And, and we started in the Netherlands and Belgium with some pilot studies. And in 1993, ERSPC started as a whole with all the centers that are listed in the publications. Obviously, in 2009, we published our first results in the New England Journal of Medicine. So with uh, hard working between 1993 and 2009, uh, showing that screening actually resulted in a prostate cancer mortality reduction relatively of approximately 20%. 
uh, we have updated that in 2012 and after that after that have published our results again also in European urology. The relative mortality reduction remains approximately around 20%, but the absolute mortality reduction is increasing over time, which immediately affects the numbers needed to invite and numbers needed to diagnose. The paper we are currently talking about is based on ERSPC Rotterdam data only. Please be aware of that. Uh, it's a large center, 42,000 men are randomized uh, in the period 1993 up to 2000. And we are in the position of specifically also looking at metastasized disease because uh, that is all something we clearly monitor within ERSPC Rotterdam. So thank you for this really nice introduction of the, of the study. Um, I will hand it over to Peter. I'm sure you have a lot of questions. Hello, Monique and team. Uh, congratulations to this update, uh, which is, I think, very important. Um, my, my first question would be, um, the reduction in mortality is now about 27%, which is a little bit higher than the previous reports. And if you uh, subtract people that uh, did not attend, then it rises to 51%, but still um, in absolute numbers, this is less than 100 deaths that can be avoided in this group of 40,000 people randomized for this trial. Um, do you still think that uh, prostate cancer specific mortality is the future endpoint of screening strategies? Um, well, it is the most, uh, let's say, uh, secure endpoint, obviously. And I must note with that that um, it requires a lot of investment to accurately label someone with dying from prostate cancer. Let that be said, that's true. But it is an, it is the uh, most definite event and something that patients are really asking. That's their first question when they are diagnosed with prostate cancer. Obviously, is the question, will I die of it? So in that respect, I would say, yes, we certainly need to follow up all our work, what we are doing and looking at prostate cancer specific mortality, for sure. The other one is obviously, and that's why we have this in this manuscript, is metastasis, because that is something that causes a lot of deterioration of the quality of life and takes uh, many, many years. So that is something that is uh, definitely on our radar. And that's why we also in Rotterdam have still um, now for more than 25 years a detailed follow-up also on metastasis at time of diagnosis and those that occur during follow-up. And as you can read in the paper, that is extremely important because only looking at metastasis at time of diagnosis doesn't give the whole pictures as is clearly shown in the paper. I just want to follow on this uh, idea yeah. of metastasis-free survival, because th this is, I think, very new data in this paper, um, that metastasis-free survival was much higher in those that were screened. Its difference was 33%. Um, and what was striking for me um, is that all of the metastasis differences was detected as their first screening visit and not during further follow-up. Um, how is this to be interpreted? Um, does it mean that the initial treatment was very successful in those guys that were in the screening arm um, so that you could prevent metastasis over time for those? Um, and that is the explanation that only in the first visit the difference in metastasis was striking? No, I think it's more the design of the trial, obviously. It's a cross-sectional design, ESPC Rotterdam. So we started screening in the age group 55 up to 74, meaning that people had a first screening also at the age of 74. And in uh, normally when you start a population-based screening trial, people grow into the trial. Obviously, that's a totally different picture. Let that be very clear. This is a cross-sectional design. So what we did in the first screening round is just starting screening a group of men. And obviously, men were randomized to the screening arm, but already had metastasized disease. They were detected within the screening algorithm and got a label screen detected prostate cancer while it was metastasized. There we had a lot of metastasis, obviously in the initial screening route. 
And later on, then you see the effect of, of repeat screenings because then you see it disappearing. But again, I'm talking about a time of diagnosis. The most important message for me is that during follow-up, still we diagnose men that are labeled as non-metastasite at a time of diagnosis, but they still develop metastasis during follow-up. And this is something we have to look very closely at what is happening there. Overall, we still have this reduction of about 30%. But obviously, if you look at the reduction at time of diagnosis, which is far higher, we would really like to learn from those cancers that are detected, screen detected, and still develop metastasis, apart from those that are due to the cross-sectional design, were already too late at time of diagnosis. Yeah. So important lessons to be learned here from this data. Um, at the time when the trial started, um, a, a man died of prostate cancer with bone mass within one and a half years. Um, now this is different. Um, patients can be treated for a long time, sometimes 10 years survival with lymph node mats. And um, how does this influence the results in the future? Because you are the only section, as I understood, that controls for follow-up um, as compared to the other ESPC sites that stopped their analysis um, for prostate cancer-specific mortality. But I think in, in terms of metastasis, we have a different area now. People live with metastatic cancer for a long time, which is very expensive and is a reduction in quality of life. Does this somehow influence your um, interpretation of your results and your follow-up? Well, let me be clear that all ERSPC centers are still active and are still actively collecting prostate cancer mortality data. So that is a thing that must be sure. The collection of metastasis is something that is an extra, and that's what's being done in the, in the Dutch center in detail. But all the other centers collect mortality data, and we are, we are aiming to do so for, for at least a few years still. We are now uh, currently uh, at a point where, at least in the Netherlands, in Rotterdam, half of the men that were initially randomized have died. As soon as that comes higher, so in 60 or 70 percent of the men that have died initially randomized, we can get a better insight of what really is the effect of our screening intervention. And this is what we are aiming for. And of course, like you said, it might take longer, but on the other hand, our men were randomized more than 23 years ago now. So we will have a long follow-up, and I think we will catch catch this if we continue for the coming years. Definitely, it, it goes now, unfortunately, very fast with our cohorts. It's declining very rapidly. So uh, I think we will get a good insight in the total effect after a few years. May I have a last comment on overdiagnosis? Because the number needed to diagnose is now dramatically reduced to seven um, and 14 regarding uh, metastasis or death. Uh, would you think this is uh, the upper end um, and overdiagnosis is not such a, a big um, problem? Um, no, no. Uh, sorry, I would not say that. Uh, our number needed to diagnose and our overdiagnosis obviously is changing due to the fact that the control arm is catching up regarding incidence. So that's all. It's something you need to be aware of with this data, comparing two arms. Overdiagnosis is an important issue, and of course, we are we have come very far with reducing this. I'm totally happy with now having risk stratification, having MRI again, a risk stratification, uh, stopping screening at a, at an elderly age. Everything people become more aware what to do about overdiagnosis and certainly about overtreatment. So that's a good thing. But it is an issue in prostate cancer screening, and we should be aware of it constantly. Never forget this. And uh, so working on this constantly to, to reduce this as much as possible, but we are on, on the right way. I'm sure of that. Yeah. For, for, the, for the last question, the comparison to, to breast cancer screening, because the data, which is probably not clear to everyone, are now much better than those data that are published um, regarding breast cancer screen for number nine needed to diagnose, for example, or number needed to invite. Um, yeah. Do you have any explanation why prostate cancer is a strategy like um, organized screening like breast cancer? 
Uh, well, I'm always very hesitant to compare different types of screening trials. You must be sure that the length of follow-up, the numbers of person years that you compare are, are comparable, actually, because otherwise you are comparing apples with pears. There is one study that was done in 2001 where they compared a breast colorectal screening on the basis of 800,000 person years. I've done that for ESPC just to get an idea where we were with prostate cancer screening. And yes, those are comparable. So we are not worse, but also not better as the other screening programs. And that's something we should always keep in mind and work on to make it uh, even better. Yeah. Thank you so much, Monique. Great trial. Congratulations to the whole group. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all to the listeners also. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Joyce. That was um, a fascinating discussion. Uh, Peter Albers, by the way, was joining us from a train in Germany. It's a public holiday there. We're very grateful to you, Peter, for joining uh, us. But uh, apologize if it, apologies if it was uh, difficult to hear Peter amongst all the various train announcements um, wherever he was in Germany. Um, great discussion, Joyce. Uh, did you enjoy that? Yes, really, really enjoyed it. It was a nice discussion. Yeah, I think so. So uh, Joyce, uh, as you know from before, as an endourologist, doesn't specialize much in prostate cancer. <laughs> but hey, anyone working in prostate cancer, not just urologists, anyone working in healthcare really uh, looks towards these sorts of pivotal studies. And a 21-year update on, on the screening study is amazing to hear. So congrats to Monique and really everybody impressive. at ERSPC for that amazing work. It, it is really stunning yeah. to think of the amount of work it takes to report a 21-year study, Joyce, doesn't it? Yes, as, as we said, I think in the 1990s, a lot of us were still in high school. So it's a, it's it's impressive uh, publication, 20-year follow-up. You don't see that too often. I know. And if you think even of the sort of audience listening to this podcast, what were you doing uh, yeah. 21 years ago when these great folk were planning <laughs> yeah. this amazing, amazing, amazing study that we still uh, refer to today? And, and great to see it in European urology um, uh, and so on. Yes. And our second paper um, is, uh, is, is very, very interesting for any of you who are interested in novel imaging for prostate cancer, which I am. Um, this is the Lighthouse study, a prospective multicenter study of a, a new tracer called RHPSMA. Um, and for this, I caught up with study author Tobias Maurer and uh, nuclear medicine specialist Stefano Fanti to hear a bit about the Lighthouse study and uh, our interpretation of it compared to other PSMA studies. Uh, let's cross over and hear what they had to say. So I'm really looking forward to getting our teeth into this next paper, this next highlight we have from uh, the October edition of European Urology. This is the Lighthouse study. Um, it is a, a prospective phase three multicenter study of a novel PSMA tracer, a fluorinated tracer called ORH PSMA 7.3. So I know a bit about PSMA. We've been using it um, in our center for many years. We've done many studies, but I have no idea uh, what this novel tracer is. But I'm very pleased to be joined by uh, two experts who certainly do. Um, we have urologist uh, Dr. Tobias Maurer uh, from Hamburg, from the Martini Clinic, who's one of the lead authors on the study. And we are also joined by nuclear medicine physician extraordinaire uh, Stefano Fanti. Uh, from the University of Bologna, who's had a long-standing interest predating PSMA in PET imaging for prostate cancer. So, uh, Tobias and Stefano, thank you for joining us on this episode of the European Urology Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. And Thank Tobias, you. I will go to you first, and we don't want to go to in great detail. We'll put links in the show notes to this paper, but can you briefly summarize what is this Lighthouse study of this novel RHPSMA tracer uh, and tell us a bit about the results? Well, first of all, it's really a great pleasure to talk with you two uh, about the study. And uh, on behalf of the Lighthouse study group that I can present here a little bit the paper, it's a novel tracer. You mentioned the name already. It's a fluorinated radio hybrid PSMA 7.3, so a long name. And we use this tracer for the diagnostic workup for primary staging in unfavorable intermediate and high-risk prostate cancer patients. And compared it basically, how does it perform for lymph node staging? And we found that also with other PSMA tracers, comparable to other PSMA tracers are very high specificity, 96%. Um, the sensitivity um, in this study was 24% by maturity read, but also this is in line with other tracers. So I think you now want to know why should we 
have another PSMA tracer around with already several ones in clinical use. And this tracer is has some features which I think are very interesting. One is the radio hybrid approach. And that radio hybrid means that you can use the same tracer, the same affinity of the tracer, but label it with different radio metals. So you can use it for diagnostic purposes, but also for therapy, um, just by labeling it with other radio metals without changing the affinity and the specificity of the tracer. Then this is a tracer which also shows a limited urinary activity, um, low bladder background, for example. And this is yeah, important if you want to really examine structures around it. So prostate or maybe lymph nodes, are, which are very close to the bladder or the ureter or might be mistaken as urinary activity. Um, more so in the biochemical recurrence setting, of course, uh, with low PSA. And then the third thing is that it is labeled again also with fluorinated um, F18, which has a longer half-life, 120 minutes, compared to gallium-68, uh, which has a little bit over an hour half-life. So that means it can be distributed to other sites where there is no cyclotron. And also, if you produce uh, F18 via a cyclotron, you can produce large amounts. So, um, yeah, these are some of the features of this new tracer, um, which makes it interesting, I think. For sure. Stefano, what do you think? Oh, yes, indeed. It's absolutely very interesting. Um, I have to say, as a general concept, uh, we all know PSMA tracers are a basket concept. So many different uh, molecules, many different radiopharmaceuticals that each one has very specific and individual characteristics. But at the same time, they share the most important characteristic. That's the ligand capability to the target. And uh, given that probably many of the people here are not radiopharmacists, I'd like to tell you, those different PSMA are like wines. I'm Italian, so I have to pay a little bit of tribute to my heritage. So wines uh, can be considered uh, as a great category, but they can also be, let's say, red and white. And into the red, uh, you have the Cabernet Sauvignon, you have the Merlot, you have many others. And if you go into Cabernet, you have hundreds of different brands. So as uh, Tobias said, okay, we have fluorinated and gallium labeled PSMA, which is different uh, mainly for logistical issue. And if you go into the fluorinated, then you have the fluorinated NO7, fluorinated RH, PYL, different other characteristics. As a matter of fact, uh, it's almost impossible to have the ideal one. It would be like a beautiful, bodied, fresh, and very cheap red wine. Does not exist, I'm sorry. So what would you like to have is uh, an ideal tracer with very, very low urinary excretion, very, very specific uptake, capability to be very sensitive and catch whatever. Does not exist so far. So we have little advantages and little con with every tracer. And you have to find a good balance because, uh, again, some have more established uh, literature data, others have a longer half-life, uh, others have a very low urinary excretion, like the fluorinated 1007, but a very high non-specific bone uptake, which of course nobody wants to have. So it's always taking into account, uh, and possibly, you know, as a nuclear medicine physician, I pretend to be like a sommelier. I want to figure out what is best for your dinner. And uh, that's the way we may contribute to that. <laughs> Well, that's a great analogy, Tobias, isn't it? And uh, is my conclusion at the end of the day that if I like red wine um, and it's my preference and I'm not that fussed about whether it's a Pinot Noir or a Cabernet Sauvignon, um, as long as it's good quality, <laughs> reliable, I know when I pull that bottle off the shelf, it's uh, I'm going to enjoy it. It doesn't really matter uh, which, which tracer we choose. Is that a, a reasonable summary? Absolutely, yes, by my side. Yeah, I think so also with some with some uh, hesitation, I would say, because 
if you're not in primary setting, but in biochemicals uh, recurrence setting, if you have low PSA values and you want to know, is there a local recurrence or not, uh, despite any pelvic lymph node, for example, then it would be wise to have a tracer at hand that shows low urinary activity. But otherwise, I think this is very specific uh, finding, but otherwise they are comparable. Yes. And can I ask you, Stefano, um, uh, with the with well with one of the other fluorinated tracers, one double O seven, we know there's more background bone uptake, and we need to be careful in interpreting those images compared to DCF PYL. Have you any comments or experience with this radio hybrid, this RH PSMA, in terms of its uh, background bone uptake? Yes, now it's becoming more and more clear that this non-specific bone uptake is frequent, is observed not only in the ribs, but could be almost everywhere. Uh, And it's mainly a matter of expertise. I mean, once you get familiar with the findings, you say you reset your threshold of positivity, then you do avoid fails positive calls. But it's very important to reset your criteria so don't pretend to report uh, one tracer as it would be another. You should be very aware of the prime cons again. Um, I would personally favor, uh, depending on the indication, something uh, uh, more specific, I have to say. But at the same time, as uh, Tobias said, uh, you have to pay attention why the patient is referred to you. So, for example, if it's about treating the patient with a teranostic approach or with lutetium PSMA, well, honestly, every tracer is fine. So if, if you're really very thirsty, even the technetium or the whatever label at PSMA, which is sort of a beer, okay, could be okay. And Tobias, can I ask you about the sensitivity? You, you commented that this study, all of these patients reported had a pelvic lymph node dissection, so the, the set a high standard of histopathology for determining the sensitivity, and the sensitivity is, yeah, 25 or th- less than 30%, so consistent with those other prospective studies that have used histopathology as the gold standard. But I was interested, um, so in other words, it's about the same, isn't it? But I was interested in a, the very nice editorial written by Louise Emmett and uh, Frederic uh, Puglio, um, where they comment that when, when we report sensitivity like that, we have to understand that it is um, a bit underestimated because it's only including patients with a pelvic lymph node dissection, not the other patients in the study who had you know extra pelvic disease uh, who didn't undergo a lymph node dissection. So um, uh, I think that while people might draw attention to that figure, it's because we are bearing in mind it's only patients with a pelvic lymph node dissection, and we are using PET scanning to determine extra pelvic disease as well. Um, and that sensitivity isn't fully accounted for. If you see retroperitoneal mets or distant bone mets, you know, uh, we, because the specificity is high, um, uh, Louise and Frederick comment that, that we need to understand that, 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 that that's why the sensitivity may be underestimated. Have you, have you any thoughts on that sensitivity issue? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, specificity, I think, is the higher issue. That is w- what we really want to have. Sensitivity will never be perfect, of course, because small lesions, you just will not be able to detect whatever tracer you're using. And it depends also when you uh, look at the whole cohort without surgery, for example, then your sensitivity hi- rates are higher. Um, if you really have pathology as gold standard and maybe even immunohistochemistry showing small PSMA pet positive immunohistochemic positive uh, lesions, then yeah, your sensitivity goes down. And yes, you're also right that all those patients had also conventional imaging and most of them had even no, no disease at all uh, in the, in the lymph nodes um, and certainly no um, metastasic disease and in the uh, efficacy analysis cohort uh, where we looked for metastatic disease we found several patients who had metastatic disease so the sensitivity yes would be higher if we include those patients but then again i think it's more about specificity um yeah in the uh, in this regard here 
Yeah, totally agree. So it's an important paper. Uh, congratulations uh, to you and uh, senior author Brian Shapen and everyone for contributing it. Um, I think, Stefano, my take on it is it just adds further evidence to demonstrate the accuracy of PSMA PET-CT compared with conventional imaging. Um, but but in, in finishing, you know, uh, the NukeMed community, um, having attended meetings with you like the EANM, which you chaired last year, there's a stream of these novel tracers uh, coming through that we're uh, just getting adjusted to as, as clinicians, as urologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists. Can I ask you to say, tell us what else you think might be on the horizon for uh, PSMA-based imaging in the coming years? Is this hybrid type tracer, you know, something we should watch out more for these tracers that can be also labeled with a, a theranostic agent? Is that is that what the future will be? Um, and is it all fluorinated? Is, is that what we need to do for those practical reasons that Tobias said uh, earlier. Um, it can be difficult to keep up with all the novel tracers coming through, but we're, we'd be grateful to you for your expert opinion on what we should be watching for. Wow, that's not easy to address, I have to tell you. Um, it's very active because uh, there's never happened before in nuclear medicine to have uh, such huge success either on the diagnostic and therapeutical application. So there are more coming some for purely marketing reason, other for making logistical even more convenient. So, for example, fluoride is fine, but if you want a longer life, you can move to copper. And there are ongoing trials on the use of copper. Um, we'll see in the very future. Uh, to be honest, my main enthusiasm is rather in uh, finding new application. As to say, for example, we have never been successful in diagnosis meaning primary diagnosis, and we have some uh, ongoing trial on uh, PSMA-targeted biopsy. So rather than, you know, optimizing already good results, because as Tobias said, the specificity is very good, why don't we move uh, to application that so far have never been demonstrated? Or regarding the Theranostic approach, uh, rather to move early on the stage of the disease, the use of uh, this, uh, as to say, so far it's just in metastatic CRPC, we want to get it in the history of the patient, the possibility earlier. So my enthusiasm is rather than in new radiopharmaceuticals, uh, uh, in new application. Fantastic. Well, it's great to see this lovely paper in European Urology. Again, um, thank you, Tobias and uh, Stefana, for joining us. We'll include the links in the show notes if you want to dive deeper into the Lighthouse study. And of course, European Urology will always be a destination for very high-quality prospective PSMA imaging and theranostic studies. Uh, so do watch out for more articles. Thank you again, uh, gentlemen. Yeah, well, there you go, Joyce. Um, uh, that was a fascinating discussion. I learned a lot myself uh, about novel tracers. It was great to hear from Tobias and um, Stefano Fanti. And next up, we have Nikita Bat. Did you enjoy Nikita's segment last month, Joyce, where she had a look at what else caught her eye in the journal? Yes, it's great to to have her input on uh, the, the the several uh, manuscripts in the in the journal. Uh, we have a lot of oncology uh, articles, and it's nice to highlight some of the non-oncology subjects. Um, and it's great to to hear from a, from a young urologist perspectives on some of the topics which are discussed in the European urology. So uh, I really like that item. Fantastic. Let's cross over and hear what caught Nikita's eye this month. So we're now joined again by uh, Dr. Nikita Bat. And Nikita, senior trainee uh, from the UK, very involved in BURST and various other organizations supporting research around the place. And Nikita um, will take us around the rest of the journal to see what caught her eye this month. Nikita, thank you for joining us again. Hi, Declan. Hi, Joyce. Uh, many thanks for inviting me on this podcast again. Uh, we have another great issue from European Urology in October, and I have picked out some interesting and varied articles for our audience. So the first one is a platinum opinion article um, called The Plant-Based Prescription, How Dietary Change Can Improve Both Urological and Planetary Health from Stacey Loeb's group by Cole et al., um, they basically discuss the impact of meat consump consumption on genitourinary health and the environment. So in keeping with uh, last month's theme, this is another area where we can do something to impact the climate crisis. And as a vegetarian myself, I can vouch for the benefits of a plant-based diet. Um, so definitely worth having a read. 
Yeah, it's great to see European yeah, urology go off piste a little bit like that, Joyce, isn't it? And uh, and do something that is uh, of great interest to people, but is not your classic randomized trial or, you know, uh, prospective, uh, highly soon to be highly cited study. I love seeing this type of variety in the journal. Yeah, it's really good to see that journals are addressing uh, these, I think, really important topics. And it's a little bit confronting, I think. I really love to eat. I eat everything, uh, but it's really good to consider that it, it, it has an impact on the environment, but also on urological conditions and, and overall being. And it is important to also incorporate dietary uh, counseling into our practice. And as a stone doctor, we do that regularly, but I think also uh, for, for, for other urological conditions, it's really good to take this into account also when you counsel your patients. So, uh, Great, great start. Yeah. And isn't it true to say, Nikita, that um, uh, restaurants around the world are uh, doing a lot more to embrace uh, plant-based diets? It's a lot more interesting, a lot more variety than there used to be. So any of these efforts to change conceptions and help us try a little more are great. And especially if, as Stacey Loeb uh, shows, it may improve urological health. So yeah, important messages for our patients, but ourselves as uh, clinicians and consumers as well, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, lots of uh, vegan vegetarian options out there. Um, and so my second article then is a research letter from um, Naeem Bojani's group and his colleagues on industry payments to American editorial board members of major urology journals. This is quite an interesting read as authors tend to investigate the American editorial board members from various sort of top urological journals and the financial reimbursement that they receive from industry and how this can conflict with their role as an editorial board member. It's a short piece, but I think it's worth a read. It definitely gives you something to think about. And I think it would be quite interesting to see how the journals and the editorial board members respond to this um, quite controversial, if I may say so, article. Yeah, I think so. And uh, the purpose of your piece is uh, not to summarize all this in detail, but hopefully our readers and viewers will go and look it up. We've, we'll put it in the show notes. But look, this is really important, isn't it? This whole topic of transparency in our dealings with industry. And in the US, it's it's very above board. They have this uh, Sunshine Act, which means that uh, industry must report um, in a totally transparent fashion any payments or benefits in kind, hotel rooms, etc., etc. So, you know, these sorts of articles are very interesting and that we should welcome them. We should all be super transparent. We certainly are uh, here, but I, I think uh, it's very important there's visibility about this so we fully understand and disclose relationships. There's no problem with having industry relationships. I'm, I'm sure Joyce would say that yeah. in, in very heavily technology-dependent um, subspecialties like endourology. It's, it's essential for the development of techniques, but likewise, it's, it's very important that we uh, declare all that, Joyce, isn't it? Yeah, it's really important. And it's also in the Netherlands, it's really a hot topic at this time. Um, and, and there is really a benefit, I think, to work with industry to to get your your, your practice at high level. And also, as, as uh, Declan mentioned, in endurology, we have a lot of instruments and you really can help uh, in, in, in the whole evolution of of, uh, of instruments. But you need to be very clear uh, about um, the financial relationships and not to give the impression that uh, there's really an, an, uh, a negative conflict of interest uh, in what you do. So, um, like you said, Nikita, I'm, I'm very, um, yeah, uh, I wonder how, how the journals and, and the editors will uh, respond to these findings. It's mm -hmm. a really interesting uh, read, yeah. Yeah, so then uh, the third and final article I wanted to highlight is a systematic review uh, comparing uh, outcomes between RCTs on open versus ro robot-assisted cystectomy in bladder cancer. Uh, first author, um, Ketterpal, but it's John Kelly's group from uh, UCLH and uh, other surgeons across the UK that have contributed. Um, the review reports advantages of the robotic approach over the open approach in some aspects of perioperative recovery um, along the lines of what we would expect. Um, I will let the readers find out more about this themselves when they read the article. Um, for me, it's another reason to love the robot, um, not that I need many more. <laughs> so um, that's the third and final article for me. 
Yeah, of course. I'm... Another reason to love the robot, Declan. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I... You know, that's that's coming from non-oncology experts like yourself. So it's, it's not just an oncology tool anymore, is it? But, you know, European urology, one of, I think, the, the most valuable parts of the journal that I've enjoyed over, over the past 10 or 15 years are these high quality systematic reviews and collaborative reviews. You know, I think uh, to get review articles published in European urology means you've met a certain very high bar yeah. and these tend to be very well cited. So I, thanks, Nikita, for highlighting one of the systematic reviews. And, uh, you know, these ones tend to be very, very uh, popular go-to things for residents in training, as well as those of us who just want an update on an area. So, yeah, thank you for highlighting uh, an excellent systematic review. And um, thank you again for looking around the journal this month. We will put those papers in the in the show notes so you can go and find them. And, of course, there are, there are other articles in there that uh, uh, we haven't had time to cover. So thank you, Nikita, and we'll be seeing you again next month. Thanks so much. See you. Yeah, thanks again, Nikita. She puts a lot of work into scanning ahead to see what articles are there, and she'll be sharing out that duty with other uh, young urologists um, attached to the EAU, senior trainees or younger consultants. So we're very grateful to Nikita and her team for contributing that section. Um, I think it's an important bit, isn't it? We can't highlight everything in the journal in a relatively short podcast like this, Joyce, but um, I really do encourage people to have a listen to Nikita's articles. And finally, then this month, um, as we mentioned at the start, I had a catch, uh, catch up recently in Milan with current editor-in-chief Alberto Braganti and past editor-in-chief Francesco Montorzi about the journey the journal has been on over the past uh, 15 years or so and where they see academic publishing going in urology. Uh, so uh, I hope you enjoyed this segment. I certainly enjoyed chatting to these two eminent uh, editorial chiefs from European Urology. So I'm joined for this segment of the European Urology podcast by the current editor-in-chief and two times past editor-in-chief, Alberto Briganti and Francesco Montorzi. Thank you for joining us on the European Urology podcast, uh, Francesco and Alberto. Thank yeah, you. yeah, thank you, Declan. Good to see you. So um, we're here in Milan. I'm actually visiting here. We've talked about it a bit on our other podcast, GUcast, and we've had a chat with uh, both these gentlemen about San Rafael. But we, today we want to talk about the journal, about European urology. And um, Francesco, you must be quite proud to, to see your protege take on the reins after all these years. How does it make you feel? Oh, I am so happy. I am so happy. And uh, I, if I go back with my memory to 2005, when the discussions about uh, the one who should have uh, followed Professor Claude Schulman, who was my mentor at the journal. And uh, I think that Claude uh, made a significant contribution in the growth of the journal because it started from nothing. And uh, by the way, if any one of those who are uh, watching us happened to meet Professor Schulman, don't forget to ask him anecdotes and uh, stories about uh, the years when European Urology was founded by himself. And he developed the name of, of the journal, for example. So if I think back and now seeing Albi uh, taking that position in a journal, we were so small, we were no one, we were nothing. And now the journal is number one really worldwide. It's a great honor. I'm delighted well, to and, see and, that uh, the thing went on. Of course, you're absolutely right. It's starting a journal and uh, uh, Dr. Shulman will always have that great credit. But but to be honest, the, the journal was not in, in great shape back then compared to the J. Urall was already very well established. <laughs> it's not like nowadays when Alberto took it over. It's this superstar, you know, Champions League winning type of team that he's now got recruited onto. But when, when you joined that journal, it, it was quite challenging. I'm sure. The, the, uh, I must say, remembering back then, I, I didn't rank the journal very high. We didn't read it very much, I must say. It didn't attract the best papers. And um... Well, you're right. It, it, it was a European journal, uh, and with all the Europeans having in their mind, I was the first one, if I have a good paper, that will go to JRL. Yeah. And uh, if I have a paper which is slightly less important, it will go to European Urology or BJU. At that time, it was not BJU White, it was BJU. And then so we thought we should do everything we can to make uh, things happen. And so I was extremely lucky in having, uh, well, first of all, Kathy. I hope that uh, she's going to watch uh, yes, this podcast. Yes, Kathy Pierce. So, um, and... Uh, as an anecdote, I, when I, I was given the, my title as new editor-in-chief, so I was in Milan, and I, I knew I needed somebody helping me. So I was looking for an editorial assistant. And I did talk to eight ladies uh, in my office, 
And I thought that all of them were excellent. And so I didn't know who to pick up. So I was so lucky because for whatever reason, I decided to pick up the name of Kathy. And uh, so that was an excellent move. Uh, and also, not only because Kathy was special, but also a little bit of luck, which yeah. is always uh, needed. And so from that time, uh, from that year on, it was every day, seven o'clock in the morning for an hour together doing things and uh, always thinking how we can change. And what did you do then? So what transformed it? Because was it eight years, eight year reign? By the time you finished eight years, it was suddenly, it was like superstar journals, speeding ahead of the rest, very high impact factor. So it wasn't just, you know, a, a few ideas or focusing one or two papers. Well, listen, to be very honest, uh, there were many things uh, that needed to be done and in my very humble opinion, they were under the eyes of everybody. So, but the majority of the editors of many journals would not see them for whatever reason. So we just uh, um, planned things, Kathy, myself, and the associate editors together. I think we made changes that were obvious and that uh, somebody had uh, to make. And uh, everybody gave a contribution. The idea of words of wisdom having Fritz Schroeder the idea of surgery motion, and then the idea of having a paper being reviewed in 10 days. Yeah. Because as an author from my side, it was impossible to send a, a paper to Jay Roll and having it back in three months. Yeah. And most of the times would be a reject. Yeah. So which would mean, well, I've been waiting for three months. I remember that uh, we were using surface mail at that time, and then faxes. Remember the facts, yeah. which is not existing anymore? All these pages. Uh, and uh, so it was at the time for a change. And I always thought whenever something goes very well, then it's time for you to change everything because otherwise you sit down. So we did it, uh, we did it many times during my years. But and now it's time for Albert. It's time for Albert. So, so he is the, the, the new thing. You were only a, a child uh, when he took over back in 2006, Alberto. So when did you take an interest in, I know you were always interested in academic work. We, we, we grew up together in Europe. I knew that. But what about the journal? That's not everybody is interested in getting involved on the other side, on the peer review and the editing side. Uh, when did you take an interest? Was it watching Francesco? Yes, Declan, you're completely right. So back in uh, 2005, uh, I was still arrested in neurology, and, uh, and, uh, but this reminds me and highlights, I believe, the importance of having a mentor guiding you through your career, because actually back then, I am uh, kind of honored to say that I also work for the journal, not officially, but like uh, behind the curtains in a way, uh, helping uh, finding new names or key opinion leaders, reaching them and trying to understand the future of research, where the fields of more, uh, of more interest uh, from the readership perspective was going. So I actually still remember that I was on the beach with my family back then. And I, was, uh, I had, I had this, uh, this, uh, this recommendation to find the key opinion leader in a certain topic. So I was using Scopus back then, uh, trying to understand who were the best publisher in the, in, the, in the field, in the beach, with my family, working August time. So everything, I mean, put, if, if, if we put everything together, I can say that it, was, it has been a real process, right, in which you get interest in something uh, along the way, uh, during time, and, and, and just, uh, just finding new ways of, of using your brain in a way, because we always say when we uh, trying to uh, raise uh, new, uh, young, talented people that surgery is only a part of our job. And, and cl the clinical part is one thing, but then investing in something else is very important for our brains. The other thing that was happening, I I'm just remembering back to that change at the time, um, a few things that strike me. One is you changed the look of the journal. So it went from the orangey yellow thing yes. to the, the platinum, platinum journal, and you called it. So is this, this must be... Which is still, by the way, existing. Yeah, because uh, it's I a mean, Milanese style thing. I, I think, have to uh, anticipate something, if I may, yeah. uh, that we will change the cover of the journal soon, but yeah. the, platinum, the platinum color and the platinum idea will stay. As many of the ideas uh, that were launched back in 2006 will stay, like surgery motion, the yeah. idea of having brief correspondency, so shorter yeah. articles. Much more attractive. And I think this is way more attractive than having long uh, 
articles with thousands of tables. But also um, the collaborative reviews you brought in. And I remember this because you you were um, mixing up younger yes, um, people yes, coming yes. through with more senior people. So we got a chance to write with these very experienced people. And it was around that time where books were beginning to go on the way out. They were too slow because now the internet yes. was here. And collaborative review articles for us became a very important way of you know, getting up to date on a topic. So, can I take, was, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, Declan, but can I, can I take this occasion just to recall and remember my very first collaborative review, which I wrote, and I was invited by, by Professor Montorsi, of course, on the role of pelvic lymphoma dissection in prostate cancer, that with, with, with 2006. And, uh, and I, I had the, really had the honor to collaborate with your student back then. And I actually realized how much he gave to the field and the importance of having a, a person who, who guide you. I mean, he spent hours, nights, just to correct my drafts and to highlight weaknesses of what I was uh, writing. I mean, what a person. It's not usual to have personalities like these who invest time in a small, tiny review which indeed uh, might be the first step of the career of the, younger, of the younger contributor. So I would like just to take this opportunity to remember the personality, the, the importance memory. of yours. And I remember through that process, actually I'm just remembering this as I speak to you, being involved with some of them. And so you've written the draft and you've been dealing with maybe the most senior author. Yes. And then it goes out to the other eight or nine authors and you'll get a response from six. And then two or three usually senior people haven't replied. But I remember Kathy and Francesco would kick them off the paper. If they don't, if they don't reply within a week, they're gone. So that was also, I think, change. It was changing time. It was saying we demand speed. And I think the speed thing was very important still is important today um, that it's not just the review process it's everything to do with it because you want up-to-date stuff you we want to get lost it. quite a number of top names yeah. in in the area in that time uh, we lost quite a number of top names that were part of the old editorial the board member because we we did prove we did try to use them again but they were not uh, doing things so I have uh, I don't know if I still have a collection of insult letters that I got at that time, but uh, I said, who cares, we keep going. And I would like to echo what uh, I'll be saying uh, for a number of individuals. Uh, Urs Tudor was always behind our shoulders, always supporting. Uh, at that time, they were the first uh, cell phones going around, so we would exchange phone calls. But typically, the phone call would come from Bern to me, and the first start, the start of the conversation would be, I can't understand how you can be the editor of this journal because you don't understand a thing. And, and so but this was his way to say, I want you to do more because this is our journal of, uh, of the EAU. He was always there at all our um, editorial board meetings. He was always sitting first row and submitting his best articles to us by the way, but, but true, he would uh, devote uh, so much time to reviewing papers like uh, Fritz Schroeder, many others who were really very top. But I must say that there was some change back then, but compared to when you handed the journal over to Jim Cato in fantastic shape and he again took it on, and yes. this has been an era of enormous change because this was now moving into the uh, dropping of print, uh, open access, mandatory open access publication depending on your grant, Cascade journals, a lot of competition. Um, Alberto, you, you, you could see all this coming and we'll talk next about the whole communication revolution, but what about all these big changes? Open access, Cascade journals, um, et cetera, et cetera. It, it, there's a lot of challenges for journals to keep their head above water and keep ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I feel, kind of, I feel a lot of pressure now because now, I, I mean, I, as, you, as you were saying, I'm taking the journal which is in excellent shape uh, which is now considered the top journal in the field. And of course, uh, it's, it's tough uh, yeah. when you receive uh, such a heritage and from such predecessors like, uh, uh, like Jim as, uh, also. Uh, so he made a great job. So he really was able to attract the best science to understand how the fields were changing. I think about the uh, uh, introduction of omics, for example, that attracted a lot of attention. And 10 years ago, uh, nobody was, uh, was in a way paying attention of the importance of uh, genomic signatures, uh, epigenetics, and so forth. Uh, the impact of imaging. So he realized, indeed, the importance of uh, integration of multiple specialities in the journal it itself. Uh, so 
many collaborations uh, in the field of, uh, of, uh, of uh, imaging, omics, and, and translational research in general, which I believe uh, changed significantly over the last 10 years or so. Uh, so uh, Jim made, made a great job, and I, I really want to congratulate with him again uh, because he made a fantastic, uh, a fantastic uh, uh, job with all the team uh, and also investing a lot on what you started as well in terms of uh, um, uh, statistical review, for example, and uh, uh, increasing the level of what we publish, giving also rules and uh, uh, guiding the authors to produce something which should be methodologically sound and which should review by those who actually make them uh, every day and uh, they, we can all derive benefits from having statistical people revising our papers because at the end of the day, we don't have the full knowledge they have. So several things which improved significantly over the last years, but what also happened, I believe, it's, it's a big increase in, 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 uh, in challenging um, uh, in new journals that uh, are taking the lead. For example, I'm, I'm speaking about uh, new journals that... Uh, have been launched in the field of oncology, and we have competition now. So it's not that easy nowadays to get the best possible papers in that field, uh, given also the great competitions that we have uh, in terms of journals. And many journals are, are investing a lot in several uh, activities we are also interested in. So it's a tough time for, 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 for an editor, but still very exciting because what we want indeed is to increase uh, even more the, the level of the journal, and in a way to uh, broaden the readership. So we don't want to reach only urologists. Uh, urology is such a great discipline where you have different uh, uh, possible uh, links uh, with different disciplines, and, uh, and I believe that there is uh, room for making even wider readership uh, and, and attracted by our topics. Exactly. That's the last thing I wanted to speak to you about because it's one thing to make sure that quality is high, which you'll measure still by impact factor to some degree, that the work is well recognized by the field. But it's such a noisy landscape to get the attention of a reader and the traditional long format of 3,000 words, etc., in a written bit of paper or on an iPad or whatever, is now being challenged by people preferring to get their content through short-form videos, tweets, blogs, you know, whatever it's called, podcasting. So do you feel that the journal is well-equipped going forward to make sure it's not just the qualities up there, but that we have engaged the readership and that we're outputting our content in the most convenient and competitive manner for the reader? Well, after you decided to join the team and to accept my invitation, I would say that we are well-equipped <laughs> to face the new era of uh, novel dissemination strategies, yeah. which is very important because we... Uh, do not any longer live the era of, of live the era of, of of longer articles of time dedicated to reader uh, to to reading in a way uh, which is as pros and cons. Uh, so we actually now need to face the fact that uh, the way of communicating science has become very different from the past. So we need to uh, to stick to uh, short messages. Uh, shorter articles, uh, more uh, straightforward ways of disseminating science. On the other hand, uh, we need to be very careful because sometimes uh, if you read the best possible article or any interesting article, sometimes uh, the devil is, is in the details. So you really need to go into deep uh, uh, data, uh, even to the supplementary materials yeah. that sometimes have uh, important information which allow the reader uh, to uh, better understand the meaning of the message delivered. So from one side, short message and a straightforward way of dissemination, but on the other side, be again very careful in, read it, in reading uh, in a correct way uh, the paper you're interested in. And Francesco, finally, we'll leave the last word to you. Where do you see urology publishing in, in 10 years' time? Will we still have traditional journals or will we be overtaken by video and TikTok? I think that there will be room for everything. And um, I was thinking that uh, when we started, um, probably I was already an assistant editor in the team of European Urology when Claude Schulman was the editor-in-chief. And I remember that uh, during the last editorial board, he would, he would show a study 
showing that uh, of every single uh, article published in peer review literature, more or less 10% of these articles would be read, 90% of the articles would just be disregarded. So everything you guys have been doing are going to do to facilitate the diffusion of, of these uh, uh, new information is, is essential. So there will be people who are happy to listen to a podcast or watch a video or whatever, but there will still be lots of people who will be happy to read the paper and to make notes. Probably those will be more in the area of, of uh, academic research, but I'm sure that uh, perhaps I'm driving the car, I'm listening uh, to one of your uh, excellent podcast, podcasts and a good idea comes to my mind and I call one of my uh, residents or fellows and tell him, well, I just listened to this, we should do that. So there would be space for everything. I think you're right. And, and I agree. And that's, that's my view on it is I think the quality of a peer review paper and prospective research will always be highly valued. But what will change is the engines, the platforms we use to drive out that information in a, in a credible and uh, in a well-governed manner. And that's the opportunity we have, I think, uh, with European Neurology over the next few years. Thank you very much, uh, Alberto and uh, Francesca, for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. So we've come to the end of uh, this podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Um, This is a monthly podcast, so please tune in next time. In November, uh, we will have a new episode. Um, And as said earlier, don't forget to subscribe and uh, please leave your comments. If you have new ideas, if you... Um, have new input for us, please uh, let us know and we will take this uh, for our next episode. So thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening and hope to see you again next time. Thank you.